I don't like playing against the house, which is why like in 98, we were just all playing against the house. The house was the institutions. They had 20 minute lead time on my order flow. The kids talk about order flow today, but there's no edge because it's in real time. 20 years, you know, 20 years ago, my order flow, they had 20 minutes before, right? I was looking at data that was 20 minutes old and I thought I was, I thought I had a huge advantage. And I did for people that weren't on Yahoo Finance. So I did, but it wasn't anything like today. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 15, Swimming with Sharks. Let's imagine a poker table in Las Vegas, and the table is mostly full of pros, which is to say that these players make their only money playing cards. Then at some point, a tourist joins the table. The table's reaction to the addition of the tourist is something between indifference and a quiet confidence that the tourist will learn some expensive lessons and go home with more experience than cash. But as play progresses, things do not go as expected for the pros. This tourist might look like a fish, but something's not quite right. He's aggressive. And it's hard to tell whether he's aggressive because he really knows what he's doing or because he really doesn't know what he's doing. Eventually, the tourist wins a massive pot off one of the pros, and the entire table is now paying attention. Our example is a hypothetical, but something like this happened recently. Except that it didn't happen in the relative low stakes of a Las Vegas poker room. It happened in the biggest game in the world, the U.S. stock market. Everyone is wondering what's going to happen next after small investors on an internet forum managed to outsmart the big money that was betting against the stock in GameStop. Now, the popular online app Robinhood is putting some restrictions in place, angering many. This morning, Wall Street bracing for another roller coaster as trading resumes on volatile stocks like GameStop after the trading site Robinhood suspended purchases Thursday. Melvin had said previously, though, that it closed out its GameStop short position in January. That holding, of course, is what initially caught the ire of the Reddit crowd. Put positions disclosed toward the end of 2020, making Melvin and its founder, Gabe Plotkin, a common enemy for the GameStop bulls. The GameStop episode raises the obvious question. How did an internet message board go to war with professional funds, funds that were managing billions And the institutions got the worst of it. An oversimplified answer would be that the internet increased access to the market for small investors and also dramatically changed how these investors could communicate with each other. This episode is not about GameStop, per se, but it is about an investor that has understood for 20 years the trends that made GameStop possible. Howard Lindzen has been a sometime participant and sometime driver of these changes. In the 90s, he became an unlikely hedge fund manager. In the 2000s, he created a very early finance show on YouTube and later founded StockTwits, the Twitter for stocks. Then in 2013, Howard's venture capital fund invested $100,000 in a company that wanted to build a stock trading app. Today, that investment in Robinhood is worth tens of millions of dollars. Howard grew up in Toronto, and then after college, he got a job working for a brokerage company in the back office wire room that managed trades. He had a front row seat for the meltdown 
on Black Monday, 1987. If a client wanted to buy, let's say, 100 shares of Apple, this back in 1987, uh, they would fill out a ticket. You know, uh, I think it was green for buy and pink for sell or blue for buy and pink for sell. And they would stick it on a little conveyor belt that was run by air or stick it in a tube. And it would come through into this room called the wire room because the brokers couldn't talk to people in the wire room and affect orders or whatever. And then I would take the order and type it into a computer and it would go down to the floor and someone would get the order done with another market maker and report back on my computer. And you can imagine that was what investing was like. And so a transaction could take 15, 20 minutes before you knew what your price was. And so the world was just a different place. And my job was just basically data entry for for orders. I remember on the Friday before, and you don't know this at the time, but it was really busy. And I was, ta- you know, because I'm typing in orders, I was typing in a lot, and they were backing. I was typing in a lot of orders, and then on that uh, Monday, you know, the mornings seemed regular, and by that afternoon, people were like pounding on the door, and their orders, you know, flying in, and people screaming and yelling, and uh, it was a weird. You just knew something was wrong. And I didn't know anything about the stock markets. And sure enough, you know, I was working till seven or eight that night. I know that because I was upset because I couldn't go to a, I had tickets to the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game and I couldn't go to the game. And I just remember the owners of my firm were just, you know, they looked uh, like they had just uh, seen a ghost. So that was my first experience with a stock market crash. I didn't have any money to lose or, or, or win, but I saw, you know, what happens when people panic. Howard was a new hire, and the turmoil in the markets meant the end of his very short career in the wire room. So he went to Phoenix, where he got an MBA. After that, he needed a job, any job, which ended up being as a stockbroker. I was not an American citizen, so you really had to get sponsored. So I was willing to take any job. And um, you know, you, back then, you opened the newspaper, even though you had an a, a MBA. And a, but I, because it was such a narrow for me to try and find somebody that would sponsor me, I ended up answering an ad for a, a stock brokerage firm. And I didn't know anything really still about stocks other than the market had crashed and uh, people are crazy. So I answered the ad and a fellow by the name of Pat Ryle was hiring for a company called uh, Epler, Guerin and Turner. And uh, he, you know, obviously I was overqualified to just be a salesman, but uh, they would hire anybody that had a certain type of you know, IQ or swagger. And he said, yeah, I think you can do this. And that was my first real job in the United States. And, you know, Epler, Garen and Turner was willing to sponsor me. And this was the end of the recession in 1991 here in the the United States. So, you know, they kind of tried to teach you how to sell. You had two weeks of, of in Dallas learning, you know, how the company worked. You got mentorship right off the bat, you know, from how to dress to how to talk to what you were allowed to sell to what you were allowed to say and how to get your own leads and, and what leads the company could provide for you. And at the time, it was like, you know, the the, the America was coming out of a serious recession from, from uh, the war. They were coming out of the SNL crisis, and so banks were destroyed, and those turned out to be companies that they that were great buys. I remember Bank of Boston was a company I sold, and I remember Compact Computer and Blockbuster, and you know the, the world was different. It was really still pre you know computers. So what defines a growth company today is a lot different what a growth company was then. Back then, a growth company 
you know, was very much more about what you could sell in a store. So it was just a different time and you had to build a relationship with people because they couldn't, there was no iPhone. So if they wanted to invest money, um, they actually really had to want to invest money there. We get cold call from a stockbroker or they had to find a stockbroker and that was kind of more rare. So you're kind of like always on the outside looking for people that might have money that might want to invest much different world. Howard became a stockbroker in the days before the internet. He had to generate leads without Google or LinkedIn or any of today's widely available data. So he just looked through the newspaper for potential customers. One of his prospects was a guy named Mark Scatterday. Mark had a company that sold those stress balls you squeeze with your hand. It was called The Grip. Part of my job was cold calling, and I didn't have really any know anybody in the United States. So you would open up the newspaper, the business section, and you would... You would uh, basically try and figure out who had money, who didn't, because you might as well call people with money. And Mark picked up the phone one day. He was in the front page of the business holding up his product, the grip. And I uh, was like, all right. So I looked him up, found his number, called him. He picked up. And, and long story short, you know, I went down to meet him. I was all excited thinking he had money and he needed money. So that was my first that was my first old flipperoo. I call him the flipping but he turned what he just thought he would hit me. He was, he was raising money from wherever he could. And I went down and, and I realized, man, I really like what he, you know, I have an MBA. I can help this guy. And I really rolled up my sleeves and said, listen, you know, I'll help you raise some money. Uh, so I was kind of doing both jobs. I was trying to build my stock brokerage business, but my heart and soul were in helping this startup. Uh, sell more squeeze balls and raise money. So we raised them some money and it became a, a, a legendary company. The Grip had sold fewer than 10,000 units when Howard invested. Eventually, the stress ball went on to sell over 25 million units. And it's now in the QVC Hall of Fame. For most of the 90s, Howard kept his job as a stockbroker and also acted as an advisor to Mark Scatterday. In the late 90s, Howard started a small hedge fund. You know, Mark and I had some money at the grip and he trusted me and I had my own little networker. So I thought I knew enough about the market to invest our money because we were doing so well at the grip. And so luck, as luck would have it, it was the mid nineties or, you know, early to mid nineties. And there was a technology boom, like 93 to 98 semiconductors, Intel, Dell, um, before the internet, but it was just all these incredible companies that were growing like weeds and and there was also the healthcare boom and so no matter what stock you bought uh, you were making money so we were doing pretty well running our business and i was doing pretty well investing in the market with my friends you know by 97 98 mark and i kind of said listen i'm i love doing this you keep your business and i went off to at the time what that was like being an entrepreneur, starting a hedge fund was like you know, being an entrepreneur. I, don't, I, I kind of regret doing it 20 years later. It just never was really something I should have done. But I, I had all this trust built up in the family and other things and said, I'm going to go build a hedge fund. So off I went, uh, mostly with his money and my money and a few friends and tried to build uh, the hedge fund. Howard has been writing on the internet for about 20 years, and he's also written a couple of books. But when he sent his investors the first quarterly update letter, a letter he was excited to write, 
The response was basically crickets. Except one investor said, just tell me the returns. You know, like any startup business, you're so proud, you're, you you come out of the gate strong and you write your quarterly letter. Or if you're a startup, you, you write a monthly letter with all your metrics. And it's like, you know, one of my investors just wrote back saying, hey, just focus, you know, leave me alone. Uh, how much were we up? I don't care what you did. And it was just a reminder that like, you know, you, you, you take this all so seriously, but you know, you have to remember the, the client on the other side and why they invest and, and what they are, what their expectations are. And uh, it was a good early reminder. I mean, you know, it wasn't like it, it, an attempt to be mean, but he cut right through to the reality. And it's a lesson that I still try and remember today is like, uh, when people are bragging to them, like, well, I do remember there's the iPhone and a bull market the last basically 20 years with a few bad years thrown in there. And as long as you were pointed in this direction, you know, you had to be pretty dumb not to make money. So, you know, it was a good reminder. It's like, listen, do your job, keep your mouth shut and don't screw up. Even though Howard has made a career out of his love for investing, he did not enjoy running a hedge fund. He says the ancillary responsibilities left no time to do the part of the job he actually liked. Well, the thing about running a hedge fund is you're not really doing the part that you like. You're talking to your clients. You do it like I said, Scott. You're making sure people aren't stealing from you. You're you're making sure your statements are correct. You're reading. You're you're worried about the short term versus the long term. You're doing everything that's not very conducive to actually doing what you wanted to do, which is to try and invest and beat the market. And I didn't have the personality for both being an operator and being short term focused. You know, my clients love me, but they didn't they didn't really so much need me to make them money. So it was just really kind of an unfulfilling type of, of business. When Howard started his fund, he didn't think he could even afford a Bloomberg terminal. But he turned this weakness into a strength. He ran a strategy where he could easily get the information he needed. He practiced momentum and trend following, often related to consumer-focused companies with powerhouse brands. Over the years, that has meant companies like Apple, Nike, Starbucks, and Lululemon. Even though he didn't have Bloomberg data, he could walk into an Apple store and see people waiting to talk to a salesperson. He could judge the products for himself, and he could see the stock just kept building on its own momentum. Howard may not have enjoyed running the fund, but when he ultimately stopped managing it, he had outperformed the S&P over an 18-year period. Howard also used his understanding of consumer behavior to make investments in private companies. He was in Phoenix, so he understood the appeal of a service that was something like open table for golf. You know, a company came in, got pitched to me. It was a silly idea around a religious, it was kind of like a religious pyramid scheme by by this guy. You know, it was an internet version of a a religion. And I'm like, "Ah, you know, leave me alone. And um, he said, you know, you may not like my idea, but, you know, my son's created this company called Golf Now, which is like a tea time. You know, I was in Phoenix. I was a golfer. It was a tea time booking engine. I said, hmm. You know, I said, I'd love to, love to meet him. And into my office, I don't know, the next day or the day after came this kid, Brett Darrow. And he had built a company called Golf 602, which uh, aggregated uh, tea times from all the courses around Phoenix and then sent out an email 
you know, they got four free tea, free times from marketing the tea times and they kept a hundred percent of the four and they would market that through email. And I was fascinated by the idea, dropped everything that I was doing, told uh, my wife that we were going to sell our, our house and invested in golf now. And I mean, that's how unhappy I was probably running a hedge fund, taking all that risk. And so this is a, this is it. And probably invested too much money in it because I became, even though I wasn't CEO, I was driving the founders nuts with all my ideas. And I was just too stressed and over, over uh, exposed to golf now. But lucky for us, it was a really great investment. And um, Comcast came along and bought it. So I, so all of a sudden I like, okay, got a hedge fund. Uh, I made a, interesting investment and I was discovering the internet. Howard's investment in golf now gave him a reason to become active in the corner of the internet where venture capitalists hung out. He was a regular commenter on blogs run by VCs like Fred Wilson. That important connection allowed Howard to turn his next idea into a reality. Fred Wilson and some other VCs invested in Wall Strip, which was sort of like CNBC meets The Daily Show. And then YouTube came along and I was like, well, I sit in an office and stare at CNBC and shake my head and yell at these people on TV in my office that no one can hear. And here's YouTube. And when I do something about it, and I wrote a, a, a paper about building CNBC on YouTube and uh, came up with this idea of Wall Strip. And through all my times at Golf Now and, and reading up on the internet, I came across a lot of these great venture capitalists. And one of them was Fred Wilson. I pitched him the idea of uh, CNBC on YouTube, and he said he would invest. And I had been, you know, goofing off on the internet and building a relationship with venture capitalists over the year uh, while I was learning about all this with Golf Now. So people knew a little bit about me. And even though I hadn't met these people for the most part, I raised six hundred thousand for this idea to build CNBC on YouTube. Wall Strip was early on some themes that have played out. In the intervening years, here's a clip where the Wall Street host, Lindsey Campbell, goes to the offices of the opaque investment bank, Goldman Sachs, and stops people coming out of the building to ask, what goes on inside? Can you tell me what goes on in there? No. <laughs> big corporation. But I'm not going to talk about it. Sir, do you know what goes on inside this big building? I can't answer that. What's Goldman Sachs? Um. <laughs> See what I was telling you about the girls, John? <laughs> They're very aggressive in New York. You can't do this yet. What? Talk to people? Okay, right. If you're questioning people coming out of this building. Yes. Uh, we prefer you not do that. Do you have? Are you a, a legitimate uh, camera crew? <laughs> I don't want to get into semantics with you. Goldman Sachs is very concerned about terrorist things. I'm asking you to leave the premises, stay off our property, and don't talk to people coming in and out of the building. Okay. Whatever they do in there, it must be top secret. This clip is a good illustration of where Wall Strip was coming from. The perspective is that the masters of the universe, like Goldman Sachs, are not to be trusted. And while they aren't worthy of trust, they are worthy of ridicule. Wall Strip set the bait. And the Goldman employees couldn't resist taking it, including the amazing heavy response from the guy that said Goldman Sachs is very concerned about terrorist things. Also, that clip is from December of 2006, so it preceded the financial crisis, when the banks became easy punching bags. The distribution method for the idea is a not very serious web video. It was like the meme of its time. Yeah, back then it wasn't about 
three seconds or an image. It was like, how do we take a half hour show and make it three minutes? And that was a meme, right? Like, could you keep people like three minutes seemed like not enough time. Now it's like three seconds, but, um, or 12 seconds with TikTok, but I'm not quite sure I don't use it. But at the time it was like YouTube was basically people filming their TV and bootlegging movies and the studios suing, having YouTube take it down, or there's just people filming their cats. Like no one really knew what to do with it. And all I saw was, wait a minute, because I grew up in Toronto and Second City was like my favorite show. And Second City was just how do, it was just a bunch of comedians act, acting like they ran a TV station called Second City. It was a, it was like the office before the office. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to do that on YouTube of what CNBC would look like if I was in control of it. So it was a really good idea. I didn't know what I was doing, but the idea was right. I was taking Second City and applying it to finance and a YouTube generation. And that's why the investors liked the idea. It was like they, I made sense to them. You know, what I got right was the timing of all that and the fact that studios would want to start buying or partnering with people that were thinking that way. Wall Strip raised less than a million dollars in funding, and then it quickly gained enough traction to catch the eye of CBS, which bought the company for five million. And for us, it was like, we didn't really, we just wanted, I just wanted to make a show because I hated what I was doing, I hated CNBC, I hated TV. Uh, hated sitting in my office, hated not being in the real estate business, and hated being a hedge fund manager. So I was so excited to just be doing something I love. And then along comes CBS six months into doing this and says, uh, we'd like to buy it. And so that whole experience of like chasing down my passion and trying to fill a hole led to me being in the office of CBS and them buying my company and which was just a, a cool experience and having the right investors to help me negotiate it and kind of making, you know, the whole thing happen in less than a year was really an, an incredible experience. The most lasting impact of Wall Strip is that it put Howard solidly in the game. He saw more deals and made a number of investments, including in companies that were acquired by Twitter and Salesforce. But seeing more deals also means more opportunities for regret. I've missed some incredible deals, mostly because I just was too rigid in my thinking. You know, I think of one being Twitter, you know, Fred Wilson, when I made him, when he was in Wall Street and I made, we made money, he, he offered me a chance to invest in Twitter. It was at 17 million valuation. I was like, oh my God, I almost had, I almost fell off my chair. I was like, what? How am I going to make money if, if they're raising money at 17 million? And I was doing the math in my head at the time, which was 2007 or 2008. In companies, there was no such thing as unicorns. Now everything's a unicorn. But back then, I was like doing the math in my head. I go, well, this company would have to sell for four hundred million dollars if they raise more money for me to for me to make a really good return for the risk I'm taking. Little did I know that like two weeks later, it was worth that. <laughs> so I don't think I've, I, I talk so much about not chasing, but sometimes things are fat pitches right in front of your face and. You just you just miss it for 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 dumb reasons, and for me, those dumb reasons have always been not understanding the size of the market and everything about Twitter. Or Zynga was another one that I passed on with uh, at a twenty million valuation. Is I, I under, that people were great, the idea was great, and I got hung up on the price. And I got hung up on the price because I was so used to looking at the stock market and thinking about liquidity. 
and they didn't really understand the scale of the internet. And so what I would say my misses continue to be about not so much the people. I'm very good at like, well, that guy's backable, but mostly about I misjudge the size of something. And that's a hard one. Like, I don't, I don't know. And even today I could be complaining about prices, but if the internet's just getting going and we're all connected, maybe no one really understands how big things can be. So that's the hard part. Howard may have missed the chance to invest in Twitter, but it didn't take him long to realize the power of the platform. And specifically, he saw the impact it could have on his domain, the stock market. Just like YouTube would disrupt CNBC, I thought Twitter could disrupt Bloomberg and become the financial, well, Bloomberg 2.0. And, you know, Fred Wilson, who had backed Wall Street, was an investor in Twitter. And I would call him and I would say, Fred, like Twitter should be, you know, setting up trading and charting and everything else. And Fred agreed. He goes, just, you know, he would introduce me to the guys at Twitter and they just didn't respond. I don't remember exactly or they weren't interested. And um, so I finally said, I'm just going to, I wrote a blog post, I don't know, 2007. I said, I'm going to start Stock Twits, which is Twitter for stocks. And, uh, you know, I got probably some good advice and bad advice because I didn't, you know, I was still at CBS and I was like, I was so mad that like my version of Twitter didn't exist that uh, instead of, uh, I went out and scratched that itch. Uh, long story short, you know, 12 years later, Stock Twits is, you know, a big profitable business and a large social network, but 12 years is a long time. Like, I don't know if I, if someone had told me when I was signing up again, this is kind of, you know, VC's job and an entrepreneur's job is to sit down and go, you know, what, what are we going to do here? This is going to take seven to 10 years. Are you up for that? I don't think no one really gave me that kind of sit down. You know, my last company, Wall Strip, I had started and sold to CBS in eight months. So I thought, you know, people just thought, oh, let's just go do that again. So, um, I, you know, I go out there, I leave CBS. I, I, they agree to let me start stock twits, not competitive. And, um, off I went, raised some money. And, and my clever hack was we had developed a way on Twitter. You know, there was the hashtag, but we created the cash tag, which was, you know, people talk about stocks in their symbols, you know, uh, <clears throat> Apple's AAPL and Google's GOOG. And at the time, there was no iPhone. It was BlackBerry. And that was people just loved their Blackberries, including myself. And BlackBerry was, uh, I think it was R-I-M-M because it was research in motion dollars. It's become B-B-R-Y. But it, and so people talk like that. And so we came up with this way on Twitter to allow to tell, you know, I just slowly started tweeting with the tickers in them. And Fred Wilson and all our friends started tweeting that way. And we created this whole way of talking on Twitter around dollar signs. And, and then we, I got an engineer, Soren Macbeth, who called me and said, listen, I'll build it. And so we built our own version of Twitter called StockTwits, and off we went. The amazing thing about internet forums like StockTwits is that you can go there to find actual financial analysts breaking down every number in a company's quarterly filing. And you can also go there to find memes so stupid, you can't believe you love them. Howard understands the power and the variety you can find on these message boards because he's been a longtime user of sites like Yahoo Finance. But it was inspired by Yahoo Finance. I mean, I had used Yahoo Finance. And I was like, fuck this, 20 minutes to late quotes. Like, we're getting screwed. But that's what the world was not that long ago. So Wall Street Bets is just another version of Yahoo Finance and chat 
with crazy people and real people and smart people and criminals and every kind of person. And Stock Twits is just for people who love talking about stocks all day long. And, you know, so they're all just different versions of what we've seen before with better technology, new technology, worse technology, but generally lighter, faster, um, smarter. But a community is a community. And, you know, Yahoo Finance and Street.com and Bloomberg and Twitter have their own versions of this. And now Discord as well and Telegram and Signal. So, I mean, the world's really evolving in this space. With StockTwits, I was modeling um, Twitter. I was modeling Street.com. I was modeling Yahoo Finance, which is where I grew up as a retail investor. So StockTwits was a little bit mix of what did Yahoo Finance do wrong? What did the street.com do wrong? What if, what did Twitter do wrong? I got all these chips on my shoulder of what everybody else was doing wrong. And that was a good story to get investors to give me money because I had all this domain experience. Like I really was right. The question is whether my VCs were betting on the right guy to like get them out of this jam and create all these things that were in my head. Howard says that StockTwits has turned into a great business, but it also hasn't been a grand slam as far as venture-backed companies go. VC investments are made based on the idea that a business might reach escape velocity and become worth billions. Even if StockTwits hasn't achieved escape velocity, it did make Howard incredibly influential in the financial web. So when Robinhood was raising money, before they even had a working product, Howard was one of the logical investors to get on board. The world looked very different in 2013. So again, this this is really important part of it. And working on a documentary about this stuff is because it's not so much about me. It's just about how long it took because it's finance, because the United States has regulations and China doesn't. But how long it took for something so obvious to happen, you know, meaning it happened everywhere else in the world first, including crypto, including eToro before Robin Hood got it right, you know. So in 1997, 98, when I was running my hedge fund, we had, yeah, I couldn't afford a Bloomberg. You were on Yahoo Finance and you were just chatting with people you didn't know. And I'm still friends with some of those people. And they worked at Stocktoots even. But we were like, like I said, trading 20 minutes delayed data. And we thought E-Trade was, you know, E-Trade and, and TD Ameritrade were the Robin Hood of that era, right? Like it was low commissions. It was fast. But these guys, they were like, we were taking it to the man. Little did we know that we were only strengthening the man. Like I would say the biggest difference that kids have today that are trading Doji and AMC is these networks and the ability to gang up and use the power of the internet to actually will things, good or bad, to happen. You know, whether it was storming the capital or storming AMC's, you know, uh, the stock exchange to move the stocks higher. They really do have real-time information. They really can go on Robinhood for free and and buy stocks at the same time and use options. We didn't have those. We had a bit of that in 99, but the institution still controlled everything. Today, everything's flipped. So if you are using StockTwits and Telegram and Discord and Signal, and you can coordinate, I mean, you can definitely get ahead of the institutions. So that's definitely something that's changed. No one wanted to be a broker in the United States in 2013. And what had become the norm was Vanguard, Vanguard, Vanguard. And every, every fintech startup was like Wealthfront or Betterment, like a better version of Vanguard. And as a venture capitalist, you know, after selling um, 
Wall Strip and raising money to invest in startups along with starting startups, I was like, I didn't, those made no sense to me because I was a stock guy. And I was also like, hey, Vanguard's not horrible. So Wealthfront and Betterment and all these robo-advisors are not better. So there were really no innovation from from 1999 in E-Trade to 2013 when I first saw Robinhood. And Robinhood itself, it started out as something else. And even before that, in Israel, when I invested in eToro in 2010, eToro was doing that well before Robinhood. And I think even Coinbase had started before Robinhood. So when Robinhood approached me by Zhu and Vlad and I went to see them, they showed me an app. It wasn't really connected to anything yet because the other thing you got to do is go get data and you got to go pay for all this stuff. And then you got to go get your SEC and FINRA licensing. And so they didn't have any of that when they approached me. What they did have was a beautiful looking app where you pushed a button and, th- and magically you would own a stock and then they would charge you zero. And because I own stock twits and because we had hundreds of thousands of people that were talking about stocks, and this is what I had gone to E-Trade and Schwab back in 2007, 2008, 2009, begging them to integrate stock twits into the brokerages that they had. Robinhood was like, please, if we build this, can we connect it to stock twits? And I'm saying, if you build it for sure, we'll bring you hundreds of thousands of customers. And that's what they did. And uh, that's what probably Schwab and E-Trade and this is why incumbents get disrupted. They, you know, what they, they probably knew at some level that this was going to happen. But, you know, they have lawyers and they have product people and everybody's protecting their job. And they were like, they just didn't see it coming. But it was an inevitability. I think what's so interesting about Robinhood is that it took till 2013. This should have happened in 2008, 2009. The GameStop saga was a coming out party for Robinhood. Their increasing influence in the market became impossible to ignore. At one point, the financial news was saturated with stories about the retail trading app. Unfortunately, much of the press was bad. When Robinhood briefly halted buying in a few stocks, it created a shitstorm. Howard was on the receiving end of some of the shit. I think I helped in the sense that I was on Twitter and StockTwits getting yelled at for things that I couldn't control, right? Like I wasn't talking to the company and I didn't have any input uh, to give my two cents. So I was just there as a, uh, as a, uh, as just the uh, sucker on the internet getting punched by randos who knew that I was an investor in Robinhood, which is just part of the game. Um, it's, it's always hard because uh, you don't have any control. At the early days of Robinhood, you know, we were very involved because we were helping them get users and we were connecting them to stock twits and we were helping them hire people. But, you know, eight years later, people move on and, you know, just like PayPal had a mafia, Robinhood will have a mafia. And, you know, you just as an early investor, you just have to let it go. And history, you know, does its thing and rewrites itself. But uh, your reward is, you know, sadly, most of the time, the memories and just the money. So I think a lot of people get carried away and it's happened to me where you think, you know, you want to have be a, a bigger part of the history or, um, you know, you want more credit. But that's just not how our business works. You know, in the end, investors give me money. In the end, they don't want long, flowery reports of what went right and what went wrong. They just want to know what their statement said. Some of them thank you. Most of them just expected you to do that was your job. And so worrying about what the company thinks or whatever is just sadly not part of my business. That's, that's the true life of a venture capitalist. It, oh, you know, and then there's companies that need all the work and don't really have, you know, don't have an exit. And so it's just part of the game. 
you know, being a lifeguard, being a lifeguard on the beach, most of the time, nothing happens. And once in a while, they got to jump in and save somebody. And um, that's kind of what it's like for us. And our job is to not drown. You know, we're trying not to let the companies drown, but in, in the in the corporate world, in the, in the world that we live, it's not humans. The company sometimes has to just be let go. And the idea is not to drown with those companies. And uh, and for the ones that get away and explode, you just have to watch with amazement and uh, just appreciate for what it is. But really, our job is to invest capital and then return capital. Howard points out that one of the benefits of platforms like Robinhood, which lower the bar to invest, is that markets are not zero-sum. More liquidity has benefits that extend beyond winners or losers in any single trade. The more liquidity there is for everyone, and yes, people will lose money as always, but that's how the markets work, you know, and the faster we can get people to participate, the better the economy becomes. And we may live in a world in 20 years where if you don't know how to invest, you're unemployable. And so... You know, if my hypothesis is right and interest rates are zero and robots start taking jobs, and not just my hypothesis, but, but a lot of tech people's hypothesis, and there's drones and self-driving cars and robots delivering your pizza. Um, well, if you're going to get run over by that tsunami and not know how to invest your parents' money or the money that was handed down to you or the money the government prints for you or your paycheck, um, well, you're crazy. This is the language you should be learning. You know, for 30 years, they told kids to learn Chinese, French, Spanish. You remember in high school, it was like, oh, if you don't speak Chinese, you're not going to get a good job. And if you don't speak Spanish, you're not going to be able to get a good job. Well, what they should have been saying, if you don't know how to invest and speak the language of the markets, you're screwed. And the good news is you can learn that out of school. You can learn that if you're 18 and your parents set up a Robinhood account. So, so I think the language that should be being learned is not Chinese, but it is English. And it is, if it's not coding, it better be the language of the markets. I want to play a clip from an earlier episode of this podcast titled From Blackjack to Black Monday, because I think it will provide a stark contrast to the world that exists today. This is Blair Hull, and he's talking about his start in trading in the late 70s, when he was paying $500 a month to lease a seat on the Pacific Stock Exchange. Even though I still had a full-time job, I'd lease the seat and I'd go down, I'd go there at uh, 6.30 in the morning and I'd trade from 6.30 to 8.30. I'd take BART, um, Barrier Rapid Transit from San Francisco to Oakland, work from 9 to 12, jump on BART, go back and trade the close from 12 to 1.30 and then, and then jump back on BART and go back to work at Kaiser Cement. And I did that for about six weeks and then I said, I was so t exhausted because then I, at the end of the day, I had to go prepare to trade the next day uh, that I told my boss at Kaiser Cement that if he had me in his long-term future, he should probably uh, change his plans for me. I just said, I'd like to leave at some point. I don't want to leave my, I, I want to finish my projects that I'm working on. But then I left Kaiser Cement and Gypsum and worked full-time as, as a market maker on the Pacific Stock Exchange. And at that time when I did that, I was actually, I had a, I had about a $25,000 options bankroll, and I think I was down $2,000 at that point, but I made the leap of faith to say I could, I could do it. The people who think Robinhood traders are unwise would have thought Blair Hull was completely nuts. He left his day job, even though he was losing money trading, and his seat alone 
was costing him 2% of capital a month. Blair eventually sold Hull Trading to Goldman Sachs for $530 million. The point isn't that everyone can become a market wizard, but scoffing at Robinhood traders means ignoring the fundamental human impulse to make our own choices and make our own mistakes, to have some influence over our future, to reject average, even if that means we might end up below average. Because we can choose the index at any time. But first, we might want to see if we are smart enough and hardworking enough to beat the market. Most criticisms of Robinhood and Robinhood traders can be traced to the idea that in the market there are sharks and there are fish. And it's foolish for retail investors to think they might be sharks. But Howard takes the shark and fish analogy and he turns it on its side. He says that actually there are fish, like the pilot fish, that exist symbiotically with sharks. As a former stockbroker who became a hedge fund manager and then became a startup founder, as well as a venture capitalist, he probably has unique credibility on this issue. I, I use the great sh- white shark example. It's like the great white shark is a great white shark. It has a really big advantage because it's a great white shark. And Andreessen and Warren Buffett and some of these people are always going to be great white sharks. But if you live, if you swim or, or, or hang around gray white sharks and stay pretty close to them and out of their way, uh, you can have a pretty good life. And they may not even know you're around them. I think it's okay to tell them you're around and thank them and try and get into their good graces or in their order flow or in their slipstream. I'm in biking, I call it a Peloton, but you don't have to. You can stay in the shadows. And I just think that's when, when I think of trend following and I think of the world today, it's so easy to find mentorship because they don't even have to, you don't even have to acknowledge that the mentor mentor relationship. They're just on the internet sharing this knowledge freely. And um, so I just think it's a huge advantage for retail in today versus 1998. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Howard Lindzen for taking time to do this interview. Howard's career spans more than three decades, so it just wasn't possible to get to everything. I'll post links in the show notes so that you can find him on Twitter and also check out his website, which still has blog posts he wrote more than 15 years ago. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Half Kelly. <laughs>